join me in Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63 is our text uh, this morning. This is a great day where we get to celebrate uh, John Walker's 20th anniversary with Beach Haven, and we'll say more about that at the end of the service, but uh, I hope your prayers will go up to God for him and his family today for a very special blessing. Uh, Jim Carrey is the renowned Hollywood actor. He's um, acted in some really high-grossing movies through the decades and the years. Uh, he, at his height, would command about $10 million a movie. $10 million for acting in just one movie. He was in an interview not long ago, and he was asked, what do you really want in life? And this great popular Hollywood actor said, love. And you know, I sympathize with him there. He's had two failed marriages, and his heart's been disappointed and broken in that way. What he wants after all the money, after all the fame, after all the acclaim, is that he wants love. You know something? I don't know that there's a person on the earth that doesn't want love. God made us for that. Now, that person may not realize it. That They may think, I want another romantic relationship, or I want a, another party. I, I want another bottle. I want a, another promotion. Uh, I want another zero to my income to add at the very end, before the decimal point. Uh, that that's what they want. But really, deep down in the heart, what they want is love. And aren't you glad that God provides amazing love? And that's what we find in Isaiah chapter 63. And here, it is a furious love. Now, the word furious can be used in a number of ways. It can imply anger and determination to correct a wrong. It can also mean energy, intensity, and uh, emphasis as well. And both of those notions about furious appear here in the text in Isaiah chapter 63, where uh, through Isaiah, God declares that His love is a furious love. So this morning, I want to address the subject, God's love a furious love from Isaiah 63. And I want us to read uh, just verses 7, 8, and 9, but we'll look at the entire chapter as a whole this morning. It says here, I will mention the loving kindness of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has bestowed on us, and the great goodness towards the house of Israel, which He's bestowed on them according to His mercy, according to the multitude of His loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Here, God's love is described as a furious love. It's a furious love. Well, what ways is uh, it furious? And when God's love is furious, what, what does God's love do? How is it that God's love is furious? Well, there's several things that arise from the text. And the first is this. Furious love creates misery. Furious love will create misery. That's verses 1 through 6. I remember in 1989, I was camp pastor of a centrifuge youth camp at Glorietta, New Mexico. Had the opportunity to be there all summer long 
and uh, preached every night of the week. This was a dry summer, uh, summer in New Mexico where the camp was located. We were down at the bottom of a bowl surrounded by the Sangre de Cristi Mountains there, and uh, the summer had been dry, so the black bears would come down into the camp every once in a while and forage for food. And one morning, I came back to the cabin where I was staying, and there was a black bear, an enormous black bear, as big as this worship center, on my, <laughs> on my front porch. Now, I was still in my pickup truck, but we had a lot of college young men working at Glorietta that summer, and they were inching closer and closer to the bear, taunting the bear. I rolled down my window and yelled at them to inject some sense into these young men and urge them to get away from the bear. Listen, here's what you've got. You've got these fellas inching closer to the bear, but the bear is there because he's hungry. Well, it seems to me that it's, uh, it's probably a time to have some urgency about the matter. Wouldn't you agree? And so I didn't roll down the window of my pickup and say, you know, guys, you might want to think about you know, removing yourself from the proximity of the bear. I said, instead, get out of there. The bear's hungry. He's on the front porch. And he was growing more and more agitated. Now, as it turned out, he ran off the porch and ran behind the cabin. But I had some intensity about that because it was a bear on my front porch. There's something of that intensity in verses 1 through 6. And I want you to read carefully with me here in the, um, in the text. There are two series here of questions and answers. There's a question that an observer observes of God. And then he gives an answer. Then there's another question and uh, more of an answer. Uh, look at verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom, which is the ancient symbol for hostility towards Israel, with dyed garments from Basra? This one who's glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. And here's the answer. God himself answers. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Well, that's who it is. That's who the observers see coming onto the scene. And then the second question, verse 2. Why is your apparel red? They would expect it to be white. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in a wine press? A wine press could be a wooden vat or it could be a hollowed out stone where they would place grapes. And to make uh, wine, they would stomp on the grapes at the bottom of the vat of one kind or another the grape juice would leak out. It would leave the pulp behind. And so uh, the question is asked, why do your garments look like someone who's just tread in a wine press and stomped on these grapes? Because what would happen is that the grape juice would splash up onto the garments. Well, here's what God says. I have trodden the wine press alone, figuratively speaking. And from the peoples, no one was with me. For I've trodden them in my anger against Edom, and especially against the capital city, Basra, back in verse 1. I've trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I've stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my fury. I brought down their strength to the earth. 
To summarize, Edom had mistreated Israel and it ticked off God and God judged Edom. And he did so with such fury that nine times in this text, God says, this is personal to me. My fury, my anger. I love Israel. You messed with Israel. I've come after you. I've done something with you. Furious love for Israel created misery for Edom is what happened here in this text. Listen, sometimes for one to be loved, someone else has got to hurt. Sometimes for someone to experience love, that means God has got to intervene and bring justice to the circumstance and the situation. We see that with law enforcement. Law enforcement loves its work, it loves its oath, it loves its vow, loves the community. And so they stand between a vulnerable community or a vulnerable person and those that would commit crime. You have a law enforcement officer like that, the criminals better watch out. Sometimes love has got to hurt. And that's what we find there. We find that the case in many other areas of life. And that is the truth here in the text. Now, there, there may be somebody who says and asks the question, and these are two contradictory questions if you think about it. How is it that there's a God and there's so much evil in the world is the first question. And then you think about it, this may be contradictory in some cases. Isn't God a God of love? Most people don't realize it, but if they ask these questions, they're really implying a contradiction in their own thinking, and they just haven't figured it out. So you've got evil in the world, and they're complaining about it, but at the same time, they want God to be a God of love. Well, well, which one is it? Sometimes for God to be a God of love, God has got to eliminate evil, is what He does. And so if God loves as He claims to love, He's going to intervene and eliminate evil, and it does no good to complain about either one. You see, God knows when evil needs to be eliminated on one hand, God knows when he needs to be patient with sinners on the other. There's no contradiction between the two. Let's just let God be God and determine what he does in his world. It reminds me of a story D.A. Carson, the New Testament scholar, told. He said that when he was doing doctoral work in Germany, he struck up a friendship with another doctoral student from Africa, from a Muslim nation. And they would meet for coffee ever so often and talk and he uh, knew that this African student had a wife who was doing doctoral studies in London, far away. And he, would, uh, he was always interested in his family, and they would converse about personal things. And after a while, he learned that this student that he was meeting with would go visit the red light district in the city ever so often and consort with prostitutes. And one day, he brought that up to him. He knew the young man had attended uh, the school provided by Christian missionaries when he was younger. And he said, now how is it that you do that? He said, uh, and, and discussed it with him, he said, what, what would you do if your wife did that in London? He said, I'd kill her. They had that belief in their culture that if a wife did that, you executed her. His tribe would do that. He said, don't you see the double standard there? It's okay for you, but you'd kill your wife if she did that? He said, how do you think God feels about it? You grew up in a mission school, don't you understand? He said, oh, but God is good. It's his job to forgive. 
and he understands. Let me ask you something. Isn't that just the kind of fellow you want your daughter to marry? Do you want anyone in your family attached to someone who views God so flippantly and has a view of God where he is indulgent like that and indulges people's sins? Ladies and gentlemen, I I dare say, you don't want anyone who believes that about themselves or their God. Or would you rather have a young man who views God as a God of holiness and justice and purity as described in verses 1 through 6. And if he happens to begin to date and marry your daughter, you want him to be scared to death to live that kind of life, fearing God will thump him good if he does. Why? Why would God ever do something like that? Because God is a God of love, and that does not eliminate justice. Instead, it emphasizes justice. Folks, I have to be honest with you. If there were no justice from God, if there were no hell, if there were no judgment, I would have a very hard time believing He's a God of love. So furious love will sometimes create misery. But there's a second thing. Furious love deserves mention. And that's what Isaiah says in beginning in verse 7. He says, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Uh, The form of the verb there in the Hebrew text is imperfect. It's repeated action. Over and over again, I'm going to shout the marvelous loving kindness of God. I'm going to declare it. Then this is the extent to which he'll do it uh, at the end of verse number 7. According to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. In other words, my goal is to mention God's love as many times as he has loving kindnesses. That's the size of my mention of God's love. And then he goes on in uh, verse number 9. Here's the sight of God's love. Look what God um, uh, projects onto Israel. For God has said, Surely they, Israel, are my people, children who will not lie, or children who will not be disloyal. Well, Israel was in many ways. But what God saw them was not as they were. God saw them as they one day would be in their own hearts and lives. That was fulfilled in the original 12 apostles and the early Christians who were almost exclusively Jewish to begin with. They were loyal to Christ even unto death. So God did not see them as they were. God saw them as they could be. And I've got good news for you. If you are in Jesus Christ and you know Christ, then right now you are a shadow of your future self. It's going to get better, and God is going to conform you to the image of His Son and one day completely eliminate anything that makes you unlike Jesus. This is the sight. Uh, Verse 7 happened to be the size of His mention. Then then verse um, 8, the sight. And then verse 9, watch this. In all their affliction, He was afflicted. Uh, This is the sympathy. Uh, He has marvelous, enormous sympathy. When someone comes to Christ and they make that faith covenant with God through Christ, God so connects himself to them that God feels what they feel. God experiences all that they experience. God knows all that they know. In other words, in all their afflictions, he was afflicted, and the result is at the end of verse 9. He lifts them and carries them all the days of their lives. No wonder Isaiah could not keep this to himself. It was in him, and if he kept it to himself, he would hurt himself if he didn't shout the love of God. 
He mentions the great, magnanimous love of God. God is love. God loves us marvelously as described in verses 7 through 9, and it should be difficult for us to keep it to ourselves. Now, we're going to give our church family the opportunity to tell our community of the God of love. September 23rd, we're going to start a visitation and outreach emphasis called GROW. Outreach teams that win. And we're going to win at this. September 16th, I'm going to ask you to sign up. The 23rd, I'm going to ask you to participate. And what I'll need from you is one or two hours, one at a time, between September 23rd and November 25th to tell our community that God loves them. Some of you might want to visit. Some of you might want to write cards. Some of you might want to call. And we're going to give you the opportunity to do that because the love of God deserves mention. He loves us and we communicate His great love. In other words, the more amazed you become by the love of God, the more difficult it will be to be silent. So furious love deserves mention. It creates misery. But there's a final thing that it does as well. And that is furious love prearranges mercy. There are occasions that I have or have had through the years the opportunity to work with those who are uh, addicted to drugs or to alcohol. And they go through a powerful, powerful struggle uh, with that. And even when they get to the place where they are on the right path, they're doing the right things to break the addiction, they're being responsible and humble, uh, relapses are typical. They are. And I know that. And so I speak with them and I talk with them in a certain way. I understand it's very likely that some of them will relapse. And that does not mean they weren't sincere. That means that drugs and alcohol are very addictive. They're super addictive and it's hard to overcome. And so I, I shoot straight with them and I tell them, look, if you relapse, and it's likely you will at some point, do not get so down and disparaging that you abandon all that you've done. I, I remember one fellow I was working with in my first pastorate. He went into a rehab program, a year-long rehab program, by the way, and he came back, and for one year, he stayed clean. At the end of that year, he relapsed into cocaine use. And David came to see me, and I talked with him some, and he was broken, he was sorrowful. It's as if he had not had the previous 365 days of sobriety and cleanness. He'd forgotten all about that. I said, well, what'd you do those other 365 days? He went on and he told me, and I said, well, go back and do it. There's your key to victory. Now confess it to God, get it right with God, and then don't swim in the guilt. Don't marinate in the shame. Just move on. Trust God. He loves you. He knew that was coming. And here's what I tell him. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be a challenge for you as you go through this, but we'll walk with you. You stay humble. You maintain your integrity. If you mess up, come back and see me. Let's talk through it. We'll get back on the right path. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to lay before them the reality of addiction and then on the other side, let them know that if a relapse comes, there is mercy in my office and with my friendship. There's mercy. And I'm going to stand by you. I'm going to believe in you. Right? Stay humble. Don't get arrogant. I'll stand with you and we'll help you move on and will help you do what you did all the other days of victory. That's what God does in verses 10 through 19 of the text. That's what He does. He looks at Israel, and He says, Israel, 
I see you this way, but verse 10 is a reality, but I provide verse number 15. Look, look at verse 10. He's loved them, he stood for them, but they rebelled and grieved his spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy and he fought against them. Then he goes on and he talks about the memory of Israel's history. And that's a great thing to do when you're going through a sorrowful time. Think about how God has blessed you. And then he provides a remedy in verse number 15 on down to chapter 64, verse 1. Look, look what they do. Look, they cry out to God. God, look down from heaven and see from your habitation holy and glorious. And then the bookend of that, chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and that you would come down. In other words, God knew that Israel would rebel and struggle. And so God prearranged for them to land on mercy when they got back up. God knew that they would struggle and rebel, and before they ever did, he provided mercy to lift them back up. A remedy in verse 10 in chapter 64, verse number 1. Hey, that, that's what God does with us. Look, do you know that when God embraced you, if you know Christ as Savior, when God embraced you, God embraced you knowing that you would fail Him. The sins, the failure, the weaknesses, the struggles, do you know that when God took you in in Jesus Christ, none of that has surprised Him? He knew before failure that it was coming, and God has prearranged for you to experience mercy anyway. In other words, if you come to Christ, God never says when you fail, that's it, I'm tired of you, that, that, that's so devastating and so shocking, I'll have nothing to do with you, because God is never shocked. God knows every detail of your future, and despite the failure and the sin, that is in your future, he has called you to himself anyway. Now, there are people that would come to Christ or return to God if they knew that they would never fail. Hey, I got news for you. You're going to fail. You're going to struggle in one way or another. We may never see it. Your family may never see it. At the very least, you'll struggle in your heart and mind. And you'll have a period of time probably where you struggle with more. And yet, despite the struggle and the intimate detail that God knows of your failure and your struggle, God today is still calling you to Himself. He's urging you to come. He has prearranged for you to experience mercy. And so you've got to understand, you come to Him and you fail, you need to know your failure will be a bigger problem for you than it will be for Him. And He yet bids you to come and urges you to come and give yourself to Him. He has prearranged a great experience of mercy for you. And so this morning, you may feel dirty. You may feel unclean. You may feel embarrassed or shame. But listen to me. Just because you feel dirty doesn't mean you've got to be excluded from the amazing love of God. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. God does not intend to exclude you from it just because you're dirty. Let me ask you. If a child gets sick in a family, who gets the most attention? I remember when Luke was two years old, we had to put him in the hospital. He got the rhinovirus and was dehydrated terribly. We took him to the doctor. The doctor immediately sent him to Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth. And we arrived at the emergency room. And when we arrived, the nurse shouted out, the dry one is here. That's how bad it was. 
And we got him there. He arrived. They uh, built him up with fluids. He got past the virus some. But a day or two before he was uh, discharged, he uh, looked outside the window to the front of the hospital and saw a fire truck. And he whimpered, I want a fire truck. Man, it looked like all the whole city went into action to find this boy a fire truck. They had a playroom stocked with toys, and some child in there was playing with the fire truck. Well, they didn't take it from him, but, uh, but they went to their supply room and to their warehouse, and they had a warehouse full of kids' stuff at the children's hospital. They um, uh, went to the warehouse, and they got him a fireman jacket, a fireman hat, fireman coloring pages, fireman stickers. I, I could have sold that on eBay and covered my deductible. I mean, oh, and a fireman quilt, a fireman quilt. They loaded that boy up with everything they had and could find that uh, had a fireman on it. And I remember the three others said, I wish I could get sick and come here. Let me ask you, when you've got children in your family and one of them gets sick, who gets the most attention? Do, do you neglect the one that is sick? Or do you and the rest of the family pour on more attention? Listen, you may have walked in here sick. You may have walked in here dirty. You need to know, because of Jesus Christ, God is willing to pour on the attention to you. Your failure is going to be a bigger problem for you than it will God. He knew it was coming. He has prearranged mercy. And he's inviting you to come to him and say yes to him. Hey, th there's no need to wait. There's no need to delay. Anything that needs to happen for this great transaction of mercy and grace and love from God to you to happen, it's all right. God's ready. God is ready. It's your move to say yes to him. What, what do I do? Well, the Bible teaches leave behind anything that keeps you from Christ today and say no to it. Leave it behind. Make a decision. I'm done. I'm done with a life outside of Christ. I'm done with a life outside of God's will. Make that decision. And then rely only on the death and resurrection of Christ and invite him into your life. That's how you get started. Some of you have done that, but you need to come back to God today. Well, you do the same thing. You say, I'm done with that. I trust the death and resurrection of Christ to renew me, and I'm calling on God. Oh, God, that you would rend down the heavens and come down. You do that today, God's going to make a difference in your life, and you're going to experience a love, an amazing love, you didn't know was possible until you experienced it. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together.